And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It's easy to jump to the conclusion that racism has never been more serious, severe, or pervasive, or that incidents of hate crimes against blacks and other minorities have never been more numerous than they are today. But as actor Will Smith famously remarked back in 2016, racism isn't getting worse. Racism is getting filmed. He was referring to the fact that so many of us walk around with cell phones in our pocket that have high-quality cameras. And with those cameras, we can capture not only cute images of our pets and children or of what we had for breakfast at the neighborhood cafe, but we can also capture important and disturbing images, such as the killing of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin in May of 2020, captured in video footage by a courageous young woman on the scene named Darnella Frazier. And she was able not only to capture those images, but then to share them with the wider world. How this changes our cultural landscape is explored in a new book called The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency from Martin Luther King to Darnella Frazier. The author, Phil Allen, is a Ph.D. candidate in Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary. His previous book is titled Open Wounds, A Story of Racial Tragedy, Trauma, and Redemption. His latest book, The Prophetic Lens, is published by Fortress Press. And before we get into the book, I want to give you just a moment to talk about something that's mentioned in your biography. Uh, It is something that you founded and serve as executive director. What is the Racial Solidarity Project? Thank you. Um, Racial Solidarity Project, or RSP, as I call it, um, is a a nonprofit I founded a couple years ago to, as a, I wanted to have a space of my own where I would uh, engage issues of race, um, that intersection of race and theology. So w- our focus is for um, pillars of activism. So we start with uh, justice and um, equity advocacy. And that's where we actually, we try to partner with organizations that are doing the work rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and trying to uh, do everything ourselves. So like right now, we have a, a fundraiser coming up next week, next weekend, and it, we have a 5K run walk. We're also raising funds not just for our organization, but for Green Line Housing Foundation, where they try to uh, decrease, uh, close the, the racial wealth gap through home ownership. So we'll, or we'll partner with the Rodney King Foundation and scholarship um, young black uh, fathers who. Um, that don't have the means or the resources to take their kids to say Disneyland or uh, Universal Studios or something like that. So we'll partner with organizations like that. Um, education is another um, pillar of uh, activism. That's where we have these small cohorts. Um, we did one earlier this year. Uh, I think it went really well where we bring in people, different backgrounds, and we have the con- hard, serious conversation around um, race, racism, um, and having the, the, the tough conversations that we normally don't have um, publicly or in other spaces. And we do it in a small space so that people can feel safe, get to know one another, and, um, and engage over a series of, of meetings. Um, the, the third pillar of that activism is wellness. Um, there's a reason why we can't really have the conversation. And as, as people of color, particularly as African-Americans, we, we, we hold uh, intergenerational trauma. We hold the trauma 
in our from our own personal experiences. We hold the trauma from uh, our parents and grandparents' generation, our history. Um, so we can be easily triggered. Um, whether we have the resiliency and we can hold it together or not, we're still triggered, and we have to carry that from comments that are made. Um, uh, sometimes our stories are dismissed, things like that. But then also when we talk about the white community, we hear the term white fragility. And there's also a type of uh, trauma that may be held there as well. Um, and we are engaged in this conversation, and we're not always well, so it doesn't go well. And so we, we try to uh, include practices of wellness and help people, and this is built into our workshops, our cohort, help people develop the skills to self-regulate in the moment so that they can engage the conversation and engage the work of anti-racism. Um, and, and not to mention, just doing the work itself can be draining. Like writing this book and my previous book, it takes a toll to deal with the data and the history and my own history. So I have to have rhythms of wellness to even endure this. And then lastly, um, community building. Um, it's more than just about getting justice. It's about forming a new kind of, of community. And this is where Dr. King's um, beloved community concept comes into play. There has to be a, a, a vision, not just to get justice for an event, but to change, to cause change, that we have a different consciousness among us, a, a different um, vision for our, for our for, for community. Hmm. Um, so that, those are the four pillars of activism for RSP, and we're just getting started, and hopefully we'll be doing this for a long time. Very good. Sounds very, very promising and important. Uh, ahead of us talking real specifically about the book, I want to talk more generally about the place of your own Christian faith in your activism. I mean, and to the point that uh, the, the title of your book is The Prophetic Lens, and you spend a little bit of time in your book talking about prophetic ministry and of how the camera, for instance, that uh, Donella Frazier was, in a sense, wielding uh, at, uh, at the event of, of George Floyd's uh, uh, murder, that... Uh, that this was a case of that camera being used prophetically as a prophetic tool. So clearly you are comfortable with uh, much of the terminology and the framework that your own faith has given you. I'm just curious in a more general sense about the significance of that faith, uh, the way in which it guides the way you, you view some of these issues your work as an activist, and uh, do you find that there is ever a challenge in terms of how much to make that a part of, for instance, your own rhetoric, uh, the imagery that you use or whatever, since, of course, you are uh, sharing insights that you want to resonate with all kinds of different people, uh, including people who are not part of your own faith tradition? A great question. Um... My faith is foundational to pretty much everything I do. Like I, I consider my faith when I make decisions, uh, when I'm writing this book. Um, so my faith is foundational to the work that I do. But it is, it is a challenge because um, I, I don't want to exclude. I want to have the language and the conversation with people um, even outside of, of faith or religion at all. Uh, I think the, the word prophetic, though it's, we, we, have a, we, we use it in the Christian faith, um, 
I, I hear it oftentimes outside of uh, the church. I hear it in secular spaces. I hear it in music. I hear it in films where people use the term prophetic or talk to someone as a, as a prophet. Um, so when, when I think about my faith, and I, well, so to say that, that's why I'm not afraid to, to use that language. And it gives me an opportunity to pull people in and begin to think about this, this topic of race or racism through a theological lens, um, whether they agree or disagree, but at least consider the, the lens to, to see it, to see, to see through. Um, but there is tension there because there was a time when I didn't have the language to even engage this conversation in this way, although I knew uh, this was, it should be. I mean, you can go back to the civil rights movement. It was grounded in the faith, in the Christian faith. Um, the, the, the black church was significant, played a powerful, significant role in liberative efforts, I'll say, from sustaining the enslaved to fighting back against lynching. Um, so our faith has always been um, a part of, of, of for, most, for the most part, a part of our activism. But there was a time I didn't have the language. There was a time I was, I was a little frustrated and confused because I was in conservative, predominantly white um, Christian spaces for a number of years as a pastor. And, and no one was talking about this. No one addressed issue, social issues, really, other than maybe homosexuality or um, abortion. But other than that, they did, everything was personal, individual salvation and discipleship and what have you. And, but I knew that that wasn't the case, that it shouldn't be that way. And so part of me um, hopes that the church, that part of the church is an audience for this book as well, to pull them into and, and not separate social issues and things beyond, seemingly beyond the church from the church as if they're in, in, with this binary uh, framework, but to integrate and to see how our faith should be a part of um, activism uh, like the prophets in the very Bible that we read. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my faith is pretty important, um, but I don't think we have to have the language that excludes people. And, and I, can, I can speak the language, and I can just use the principles and speak a very different language that includes more people in the conversation. Hmm. We're speaking with Phil Allen, Jr., talking about his newest book, The Prophetic Lens, The Camera, and black moral agency. Uh, I don't remember you saying it in so many words, but I am assuming that uh, the aforementioned uh, event uh, in, in May of 2020 is what really galvanized you to, uh, to consider this topic and to write this book, the event in May 20 in, in, in which uh, George Floyd uh, was killed by police officer Derek Chauvin and that scene was caught on video by Darnella Frazier, which of course helped completely reshape what had been the narrative of, of what actually happened to, to Mr. Floyd. Uh, was that really the kind of the seminal uh, inspiration for this book? Or even ahead of that, had you already considered the power of the camera when it comes to capturing events like that? Yeah, so... The, the George Floyd uh, murder did not really play a role in writing this book. 
it was before and after that. So two years before that or a year and a half before that, I went to Sundance Film Festival and for a class, for a, a directed study with a professor. And so I, I'm watching film, and my idea was to, 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 to write about how Dr. King used the camera in, a, in this prophetic way as a tool, to, as a resource um, during the Civil Rights Movement. And it was actually a critical resource. If it weren't for the camera there, where would we be? And so I, I went to that to Sundance and I saw so many films and I was a part of a, an organization called Windrider and they, they, they're a Christian organization, but they curate a space of conversation around the films and with the directors, sometimes the, the, the star actors, the producers, the writers, um, and not all Christian audience, but of Christian filmmakers, but most of them are from Christian organizations, Christian schools. And they talked about the prophetic ministry or the prophetic um, way that these films uh, or impact these films have. And I kept hearing prophetic, prophetic. And I walked away and I wrote a paper called The Prophetic Lens. So this started off in 2019 as a paper. And it, I repurposed it a couple of times and published it in a couple of journals, a journal and an anthology. But then it was fast forwarding to Derek Chauvin's trial. And that was the catalyst. So I had this paper sitting here, and, I'm, and after the trial, and I realized the camera was the, was the, the star witness, the, the, the video footage, I'm sorry, it was the star witness. And this camera is an extension of Darnella Frazier's work. The camera itself is not prophetic, but it's an extension of someone who, whether conscious or, consciously or not, is engaged in prophetic, the disrupting work, disrupting the, the dominant narrative, see, this is what's actually happening here. So the camera was critical to that in that trial, and that's when I decided to write the book. Hmm. It's in Chapter 4 of the book, Uncovered Truth, a prophetic alternative, that you kind of explore this whole notion of, 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 of being a prophet, of what prophetic work is, and of, indeed, of how uh, prophets come to disrupt, to upturn uh, previously understood uh, understandings about uh, how the world is and how we are to live within it. Uh, in, in talking about this, you, you quote uh, an author by the name of Walter Brueggemann, and some of our listeners may, may uh, know of his work, and you specifically quote a book of his called Prophetic Imagination which outlines a couple of important ways, really two factors in particular, that must be a part of the work of a prophet in order for them to be effective. Uh, explain to our listeners these two elements of prophetic ministry and how they most, both must be present. Yes. Um, so, so Brueggemann talks about the prophetic ministry as the activity that nurtures, nourishes, and evokes an alternative consciousness. To me, that, that's the key part of it, evoking an alternative consciousness. Um, and then he talks about criticizing two elements that must be there, criticizing and energizing. So there's a criticizing of the status quo, the dominant um, consciousness, 
um, those in power. We've heard the phrase speaking truth to power. That's, a, it's a, it's, that's the criticizing part. And I think capturing scenes like what we saw with George Floyd, um, and in the case with Arbery, it's more of the publishing, the leaking and publishing of the video, because the person who shot the video was not doing it trying to help George Floyd. But that in and of itself is inherently critical of policing, of anti-black violence, um, whether, whether they mean for it to be or not, the fact that you capture that event and you publish it for the world to see is a, is a type of criticizing act uh, on top of rhetoric and, again, speaking truth to power um, and the protests where people are, are speaking out about injustices and inequities. But then there's also the energizing part. And the energizing, as I'm thinking about it, it could be a couple. It could be a good thing, and it could also fall short. Brueggemann talks about energizing an alternative community with that alternative consciousness. Usually, it's communities from the margins, those who have perceived um, less power. And so, you, because you you can't just do something and then go back to everything is normal, there has to be this energizing for something new. But that energy could be something new, um, a fight for justice, a revolution for justice, and that's it. My opinion, the energizing has to go, has to be about justice, equity, but also the energy, sustained energy to form a new community, a new humanity, I heard one, someone say once. Mm. Going um, beyond the anger that one might feel uh, to a vision for how the world should be and how we should be living. Yeah, yeah. And, and the anger is, is understandable. I mean, who wasn't angry? And, and for African-Americans, who hasn't been angry? Um, my, my, my story, sometimes I can tell a whole story about my life engaging racism. But at some point, if we as a collective do not heal and move forward and, and there be allies and, and a multi-ethnic, multicultural movement towards a newness, then we'll be having the same conversation 20, 30, 50 years from now every time something happens because we haven't moved to the new. So that has to be a part of it. The, the energizing has to include energizing an alternative consciousness, an alternative community that tries to form something new. And it's very idealistic, but the pursuit of it um, that, that's the work that we have to, be, to engage in as well. I wanted to ask you about another term that you used in talking about uh, the killing of George Floyd. And uh, I'm trying to find it, but I'm not, not seeing it at the moment. But someplace in the book, as you talk about that being an incredibly important moment uh, in the history of, of, of race relations in our country, you call it a, an event that was catalytic as in uh, the catalytic converter that one has in one's car. And I guess I'm not enough of a trage of a car mechanic to understand that term. And I just found it. Um, some have commented that George Floyd changed the world. He did not ask to die with a knee on his neck. I believe what happened to Floyd was a tragic but catalytic event that caused some change in the world. This speaks to what we were talking about before. Explain a little further what you mean by those words. 
Yes. So we remember, um, and you, I think you alluded to the statement that the Minneapolis Police Department put out initially that really does not reflect what we saw in that video. Uh, one could say it was a flat-out lie, argue it was a lie. And it was basically saying there's no there there. And people say George Floyd changed the world, and, and, and so you can argue that, but I think it was Darnella Frazier who changed the world because she was the one who had the presence of mind to record, not just to yell for the police to stop, but she pulled her camera out and she recorded, and she stood there with resiliency and enough composure to capture this man dying in front of her. She saw a man lose her life, lose his life in front of her. That, that's traumatic. But it was the publishing of that video that changed the narrative and was world-changing because it started this global movement. If she did not record, we would not have, we might have the surveillance, some body cam footage, but I don't think it would have been as strong as the, the video that she took. But the, the event itself was catalytic. George Floyd did not ask for it. He did not seek it. He did not want it. If he were alive today, I guarantee you he would say, I wouldn't want to go through that again. But it was the event that was catalytic, that, was, uh, that started, like, it, it happened. And from that point on, the release of the video, the evidence shown, um, that's what actually changed hmm. the world. Much like Emmett Till didn't ask to be killed, but his picture published in the Jet magazine, that's what was catalytic for the civil rights movement. That's what got, was part of what made Rosa Parks sit. She was tired and she was motivated after that, many people will say, many historians will say that that was the event that led to the, 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 the momentum for the civil rights movement. And I think the George Floyd um, event was similar um, once it was published. Mm. Speaking of Rosa Parks, reminds me of when you talk in your book about the sort of the, 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 the most noteworthy years of the civil rights movement and some of the most important events and how certain events, of course, were captured uh, in news footage that changed everything in terms of, of people maybe being shaken from their complacency or maybe coming to a new clarity about what was going on in, in the Deep South uh, in, in, in some of these areas. Um, I mean, uh, and I mean, our listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. But we are talking, of course, about footage and images being captured by by the news media versus regular people. And I suppose that 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 whole matter of I mean, thank goodness for what we were able to see. But one wonders how would the world have changed if if ordinary people could have captured what was happening in their lives, happening to their loved ones, happening to their neighbors, uh, if, if, if that had been possible at that point in time versus so much of that uh, black, uh, violence against blacks occurring, in a sense, in private, behind closed doors, or out of the public eye. 
do you think very much about what that would have meant if such a thing would have been possible then? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the civil rights movement, the leaders of the movement had to rely on the um, the goodwill of the the news reporters or the cameramen there that they would have wanted to capture this violence and 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 publish it and broadcast it. Um, I wish you know I think about we we talk about lynching often and we have a certain number, but it doesn't begin to capture the amount of people who were lynched, particularly in the South. My grandfather was lynched. Um, he was not hung from a tree, but in the, the social connotation of the word, he was lynched. A mob of three men um, that he knew set him up, and his employer, his boss, shot him in the back of the head as he tried to get away. Well, there's no video footage, even though there was supposedly a witness that saw the struggle right before it happened. She never came forth. There was never any investigation. And whenever I screen my film, my documentary film, Open Wounds, um, there's always someone, especially of the older generation, through tears, will recall and share a story of a family member where it happened similarly to them. My great-grandfather was lynched and not hung from a tree, but um, he was killed at the hands of racism. Wasn't captured on film. And it wasn't, it's not counted in, the, in the, the data. And so, yes, if we had cameras back then, if we had this technology, if the camera was democratized back then, I think we would have caught way more. We would have seen way more um, evidence of the violence that was occurring during that time. Um, but fortunately, those cameramen, I call them in the book allies. They were allies of the movement. And their lives were on the line. Their, their lives were in jeopardy for simply coming in the South, broadcasting, recording, documenting, and publishing um, what was happening. So I wish we did have more more access back then. I think lives might have been saved. Um, progress might have been made um, much quicker. You uh Remind us about uh, one of the most painful moments uh, from that era, and that was the uh, the brutal murder of Emmett Till. And you remind us of uh, a decision that his grieving mother made uh, for uh, the casket to be open and for people to see uh, the body of her son because she wanted people to see what had been done to young Emmett. And of course, that was uh, a, a certain kind of visual representation, sadly, after the fact. But even that had a tremendous impact and uh, probably points to something that we sometimes take, take for granted, but which is the power of a visual image that takes us beyond mere words. Yeah, um, that was brave. <laughs> that was courageous. Um, and, and it also had to be painful for her to make that decision to to want the world to see. When I was a kid and I would see that image when I was really young, I didn't think it was real. 
I didn't think a person could look like that. Um, but it, it, it showed the, the extent of the violence um, and depravity of, of life, um, the lack of care for life that, that he had to endure and, and black folks had to endure during that time. Um, but, but we respond to visual imagery. We, this, this, even still shots like that, I call it in the book, I mentioned nonverbal language um, of images that we can, it, it forces us, to, imagery forces us to have to reflect, to pause, to gaze, to, to internalize, whether for good reasons or bad reasons, we end up internalizing it, especially if we see it enough, enough of those images. And um, then it becomes an embodied experience or we have an embodied response. Um, like, for instance, you asked me about um, the, the well, I've, I've been asked about the, uh, my response to the George Floyd video. Well, the image itself, whether it was a video or if it was a still shot, it, it was triggering for me because of my past and my history um, with, with law enforcement. Um, so it, that, that image, more than just words, um, more than just causing us to imagine what may have happened, the, the still shots tell us this is what actually happened. And we have, to, we have to now confront it, or it confronts us. Um, or in the book, I say it invites us also to, to, to look at truth, to look at reality. Um, I think the video images go, go, go further than the still shots, though. They give us breath. They give us um, the extent, the longevity of the incident. They give us sound as well. So all those things give us a chance to have an embodied experience with what's happening mm. and and then we respond to that like it's human nature to respond to that your book goes on further to describe another aspect of the video footage captured by darnell frazier which i think uh some people might not fully appreciate i know that i did not until i read this passage in your book you tell us that one of the most important things we experience when we watch that footage, and especially when we watch it carefully and when we watch, in particular, uh, Officer Chauvin, we see him looking right into Darnella Frazier's camera, unafraid. I mean, in a sense, untroubled that somebody is, is, uh, is filming this and uh, you tell us that that really says something powerful about uh, the position or perspective from which he was operating in that moment. Yes. So one critical part of the video of Donella Frazier is proximity to the event. It's one thing if she was standing across the street and was recording the video. But she was right there, maybe 10 feet away, 8 feet away from what was happening. And that, from that vantage point is where we could see, unlike um, maybe a little bit of body, body cam footage, but not in the same way, unlike the surveillance across the cameras across the street, we could see his eyes, his expression, his uh, body language. We could see how relaxed he was. We could hear George Floyd's cries for his mom, 
um, saying he can't breathe, all of that. And I think that's part of the, 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 the idea of prophetic in his location and proximity to pain, trauma, um, the willingness to, to be there, to be present there. Um, and I think that, that was, she should be commended for that, um, that she remained present. Um, she didn't turn away. She didn't turn the camera off. She didn't try to mind her own business. She remained present. Um, that should be a lesson for, for all of us. And I'm not saying, you know, sometimes we see people get too involved in, in, in what pe- law enforcement's doing. I think there's a responsibility if you're going to have a camera because you can also make it unsafe for everybody there. Um, but to follow her lead and re- remain as composed as possible um, without walking away, but also without getting too close and, and making matters worse. So I think um, to answer the question in, in short, location, proximity to, to the pain, proximity to the event, the tragedy is important. It's something, it was a perspective that no other um, video evidence um, provided us. Mm. There's something else that you, you mention a, a little later in the book that I think is, is important. This comes in Chapter 7, which is titled, When the Bystander Aims and Shoots. And um, this is where you, you, you talk about how Darnell Frazier needed to be feeling a number of things, uh, including courage to, and, and having presence of mind to stand there as close as she could and capture what she was capturing. It was so important uh, to do that. You write, just as the cameramen from national news, news networks were allies of King and the civil rights movement, the engaged bystander can be the ally for the victim and the victim's family in the event the victim does not survive the violence perpetrated against them. Prophetic ministry begins with presence. Prophetic work requires the presence of those from the margins who have the instincts and courage to act as disruptors of the activities of power. But it begins not just with presence, but with love. More than just physical presence, both require consciousness, seeing, and hearing others. That is, Donella Frazier had to have a profound sense of concern and a profound appreciation for the injustice of what was being done uh, to George Floyd in that moment. And that had to help carry her. And I appreciate you saying that because I think, on the other hand, you know, a lot of us who walk around with, with uh, cameras on our phones, we are eager to use that when uh, you know there's some traffic accident or there's some, some wildfire or there's some other kind of dramatic wild thing going on. And it's not necessarily that we capture those images with a sense of sincere concern, uh, but more like, wow, this is, this is something. I'm going to post this, and man, uh, this, it's more like capturing something because of the excitement of it uh, mm-hmm. versus what we're talking about with Darnella Frazier. She was not capturing those images because there was anything exciting about it, but because it was profoundly disturbing to her. And she wanted in that moment to make some kind of a difference for the better. And that's probably a really important thing for all of us to remember in all of this. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
the, the prophetic ministry, authentic prophetic ministry is selfless. We, we can get caught up in the, the passion, the fire, and, and oftentimes, some, some, depending on who it is, they may be loud, but, but authentic prophetic ministry is selfless because it is concerned for neighbor or neighbors, the individual or the collective. Um, and and that, 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 that love, that concern, you use the word concern, I like that as a, just as appropriate, has to be there. A concern for where society is, a concern for the happenings in society around them, even if it doesn't touch their lives directly, like they're not the ones, the, the victim of it, there has to be a love there. We talk about loving our neighbor. Well, you can't love your neighbor if you see your neighbor being harmed and you keep moving. Uh, the prophet is not only going to call it out, the harm that's done, but the prophet is going to be present because of the neighbor. And we forget that part of the, the prophetic ministry, the, the love aspect of it, the concern aspect of it. Um, and I think, again, she, that can be a model for how we ought to be. And what we can use it specifically dealing with race or racism, and we can take this and use it for, uh, for any other social issue um but there has to be some type of uh deep sense of, of love and concern for for one's neighbor to operate in that prophetic ministry you move beyond uh what we have primarily been talking about to also talk about uh important black filmmakers who have uh you think made uh, a, a significant difference with many of their works um I, I want to give you just a moment to highlight maybe one or two that you want to underscore for our listeners and maybe have them investigate further. Well, I, I think, um, and I recently, before writing this book, someone um, told me, a filmmaker, told me about Oscar Michaud. Michaud. Um, and he was the the forerunner, if you will, for for black filmmakers. And what he did coming off of the, you know, behind Birth of a Nation, that this, this racist film that really reified this narrative about the, the dangerous black man, especially if I was a target, you really narrow and focused on its target, the dangerous black man, but also it, it depicted black women um, in a negative light as well. Um, and this narrative has its legacy even today, not just in filmmaking, but just in society um, that, that I'm a danger, particularly to white women. And there's an assumed um, guilt, assumed criminalization, assumed um, threat there. Well, Oscar Michaud comes in and he wants to present black people in a different light. He wants to show them um, much like his own life, how he started off um, not having anything like most black people, but he continued to work and work and work his way up to where he could even buy, buy um, farmland, um, buy his, his own property. And then he began, he became a filmmaker and he wanted to disrupt the dominant narrative. And he wanted to present black people in a different light. Um, not only, for, for white people to see there's a difference, but for black people to see themselves differently, represented differently. 
Um, so I think he, you know, as I came to learn about him and see how important of a figure he was, I think he's someone that people have to, 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 to study, to read, to, to research, do some research on. And then you come to someone like a Spike Lee. Um, everyone knows Spike Lee, but his film Do the Right Thing. Not only was it a film depicting an event that happened prior to the making of the film, so a, a young man had, in, in Brooklyn had been killed by a, um, a chokehold, but it was also, it's relevant for today. We saw what happened with George Floyd. We see the things that are happening today. That film was prophetic. That film uh, could, could speak to, in the 80s, it could speak to the 90s, it could speak to, to 2020. So I think it's important to look at Spike Lee's work as, as, as a whole to see what is, what is he trying to do? Is he trying to um, just tell black stories? Is he trying to disrupt the narrative? Is he trying to, to kind of present history, represent history to us? What is he trying to do? Um, so I think Spike is someone that we shouldn't just look to for entertainment, but understand the, um, the, the depths of his message, his, his overall message with his films. Hmm. I wanted to mention before we, uh, before we finish that I really appreciate what you have written that helps me warm up to the term of white supremacy. And to be mm -hmm. perfectly honest, it's a term of which I'm not very fond. And, and I only mean that in the sense that I think it is a term that is very easily misunderstood by the very people who need to understand it the most. And I guess, I guess it's, it's partly that I think the term is sometimes misunderstood to basically mean if you're white, you have it made. Um, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're white, you are king of the hill. And, 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 and of course the problem with that is it, 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 it misses the point that there are all kinds of white people who have all kinds of struggles, including mm -hmm. plenty of whites who are, you know, themselves marginalized in, in some respects. And I think it just seems like the, the term white supremacy uh, is 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 in some ways kind of a careless way to summarize something just a bit more complicated. That being said, I feel like I appreciate the truth of the term much better after reading your book, and in particular the way in which you 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 use some other terms like white sovereignty, or in many cases talk about kind of white centeredness. That that's as much as anything what this is about is people walking around with this idea that white is normal. And mm -hmm. then these other people, they might not be terrible people, or we might not even actually think of them as overtly inferior, but they're, those are other people. But we start with the normal people, which are the white people. And whiteness mm -hmm. is like where it all begins. And then you add on these other things and these other colors and so on. And as I read read that, as you described that, it's like, yes, that is where so many of us, even those of us who hope we're not racist, but uh, uh, but walk around with those kind of careless assumptions all the time. Uh, yeah. In our closing minutes, how would you have us kind of grapple with with this this idea, which is so hard to talk about and and yeah. and so hard to, in a sense, take in? Thank you so much for that question um, and your response to reading that section of the book. Um, I think it's so important to understand terms 
and, and, and because over 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 time they get used very differently and can take on different meanings. Um, so when we talk about white supremacy, we talk about this undergirding ideology, this this way of seeing white selves in contrast to people of color, particularly in contrast to, to black people. And it doesn't require malice or intent. Like I said, you can be conditioned to believe something that's normal. And over generations, it just becomes normal, um, the way you take up space. And I usually compare um, that to male supremacy and male privilege. I have privilege in spaces. I can go in certain spaces, and I will get opportunities that, that women won't get. That's just the reality. So when women call that out, I don't, I don't take it personally. They're talking about here's the history, <laughs> here's the reality. So with white supremacy, it centers whiteness. It makes white the normative, as you as you um, talked about. Um, it prizes whiteness. It has established that. I mean, you can look on 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 in, in film, and what what's the standard of beauty? Most people are not going to say. It's a black woman, a Latino, a Latina, indigenous. They're going to say blonde hair, maybe slim white woman, blue eyes, fair skin. Historically, that has been the standard of beauty. Well, when I use white sovereignty, I'm saying I'm I'm adding the the, the layer of well, who decided that was the standard of beauty? So white supremacy is the quality of whiteness being superior to everything, everyone else. But white sovereignty says that whiteness has assumed the authority to decide who is normal, who is more human, more beautiful, more civil, more intelligent. So I think we have to add that term into it as well. But I think if people actually paused and understood what white supremacy, what whiteness as a worldview, white supremacy as an ideology really is, and also how it affects white people. When that word was invented and codified in, in the 17th century for the purposes of creating this, uh, of solidifying this hierarchy and dividing poor whites and, and, and blacks at the time, when that word was created, it also stripped white people of their ancestry. So you became white when at once you were British or Irish or um, Dutch or what have you. Now, white becomes the identifier. Well, that strips you of something as well. And poor white people have never benefited from white supremacy other than the fact that they're viewed through that membership as not being equal to, to blacks on the social hierarchy, the African-Americans. That's the only benefit. Hmm. But they too have been exploited, not to the degree in, in, as, as African-Americans or indigenous people, but they don't benefit from white supremacy other than that. And so taking a pause and actually understanding what the term means, and it's not just saying every white person is racist. You can do racist things and not be, ra be a racist person at your core, just like I can do a sexist, something that's sexist or make a sexist remark, but in no way, shape, or form am I sexist, right? And so I think that pause and really understanding what this term means and how it has conditioned me as a white person. Because as a black person, I have to look at how it has conditioned me as well, hmm. through media, through film, through education, 
um, and so on. Mm. Your book is exactly that opportunity, I think, to stop and pause and carefully consider so much of what we kind of carelessly toss around. It gave me so much to think about. The book, again, is The Prophetic Lens, The Camera, and Black Moral Agency from Martin Luther King to Darnella Frazier, published by Fortress Press, and the author, Phil Allen, Jr. Thank you, Mr. Allen, for this conversation and for this remarkable book. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.